0: Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite.
1: What I learned with the Losing Music Project was... How much it helps to feel as though you have to write a book. It felt as though this was the way I claw myself back to the world. This is what's happening. This is who I was and this is who I've become.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas.
1: And
3: I'm your other host, Isaac Butler.
2: Isaac, it is so nice to see you again. But tell me, whose voice did we hear at the top of the show?
3: We heard the dulcet tones of writer and teacher John Cotter, whose wonderful new memoir, Losing Music, is out now from Milkweed.
2: And why did you want to speak with him?
3: Well, I mean, on a simple level, I just think Losing Music is a really good book, and it's about a fascinating subject. Um, Mm. The story of the book is that John becomes chronically ill and disabled in middle age due to mysterious circumstances. And that, in turn, changes his life and what his expectation of uh, his life is going to be and and even whether or not he wants to keep living it. I mean, those Whoa. are some of the questions that it's really, you know, chewing through. Um, and John is a really thoughtful and sensitive writer and human being. He's really used the writing of this book to make sense of the changing circumstances of his life. And that, and that gives the book a really um, uniquely alive feeling. And I just wanted to find out how he did that.
2: Wow. Well, I'm sure this is going to come up in the interview, but I have to ask... Did he figure out the solution to the medical mystery of the chronic illness that beset him? Did he get a diagnosis, a cure? I'm guessing I'm also wondering to what extent that really was the subject of the book.
3: Well, yes and no. Uh, John has Meniere's disease. And as he explains at length in the book and mentions very briefly in the interview, that's what's called a diagnosis of exclusion, which I, I didn't know what that was until I read the book. But now I'm going to sound like an expert on it. What, what it really means <laughs> is... He has certain symptoms. The two big ones are attacks of vertigo and intermittent deafness, right? So he has Mm -hmm. those symptoms and they have ruled out they are not caused by any of the other things that could be causing them. Mm. And it's this family of symptoms. And so that's called Meniere's disease. And in fact, he even says in the book in 100 years, Meniere's disease might be 20 different things. Yeah. You know, we might not have that term anymore. We might have, you know, for each symptom, its own name. Yeah. So as you can imagine, with a diagnosis of exclusion, the actual implications of that for treatment, prognosis, symptom mitigation, quality of life, you know, all that stuff. It really varies from person to person. And that's part of what is the motor of the book is that even when he gets an answer, it doesn't actually fix anything.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well, I am very interested to hear this interview. And I believe you have an extra segment exclusively for Slate Plus members. What will they hear?
3: Yes, uh, they will. Well, you know, John is a teacher as well as a writer, as you Mm -hmm. know, I think many writers are. But unlike most writers I know who teach, he like really loves teaching. It's like (laughs) really a calling for him. He really loves it. He writes about it extremely movingly in the book. And so I just wanted to talk to him about how he sees the relationship between his teaching practice and his writing practice and how they inform and improve each other.
2: Wow. Well, if you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of the episode. If you are not yet a member of Slate Plus, it is super easy to join. And as a member, you'll get to hear extra segments on this show and others such as The Waves and Culture Gabfest. Fest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Apple's podcast of the year, Slow Burn. And of course, you'll never hit a paywall at A little site called Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with John Cotter.
3: John Cotter, thank you so much for joining us today here on Working to talk about your process.
1: Oh, It's a pleasure.
3: So your lovely new memoir, Losing Music, is out now from Milkweed Editions. Uh, for our listeners, maybe who are unfamiliar with the book, can you just tell us a little bit about what it's about?
1: Well, it's a story of a medical mystery and a life that got taken apart. I could hear fine. I could walk fine. I was healthy. I was jogging. I was living not my best life, but I was living one of my pretty good lives when this thing struck. <laughs> Suddenly, the sounds around me became unusual they became distant they became muddied staticky this strange hum rose up around me almost like a field of cicadas if you walk out into a field of cicadas and feel that hum rise and it starts very soft and then it overwhelms and as that hum would rise the sounds of the world would fade out and disappear at the same time i was subject to these weird vertigo fits this sense that the world was falling away, that I was falling. This sense that objects were flying through space. Uh, it was t- deeply unsettling. And of course, it it damaged my life. It damaged my relationships. We didn't know what was causing all of this. Well, we never really did find a diagnosis that we were happy with. But part of the story of losing music is the story of this journey, is the story of learning to live without this sense, the sense of sound and also the sense of balance that I'd relied on that I never thought too much about and weighing what I lost. But a lot of the book, the whole second half of the book is the story of learning to live in the world in a new way and hearing the stories of other people who also had to learn to live at the whim of luck and chance and maybe even fate.
3: Mm. And so at what point did you realize this was something that you wanted to write about or that this was maybe, a, a you know, a book length project?
1: This thing started happening to me. It made me stop writing. I was working on a novel beforehand. I quit writing it. I wasn't able to focus on a screen. A screen was blurring. It was the vertigo was causing the screens to move in a way that I couldn't work on them. I wasn't able to teach anymore. I was teaching before I got sick. I was pretty moribund. And at a certain point, I started writing about what was happening just as a way of reattaching myself to the world, Mm. reattaching myself to this thing that I used to do. I was a writer. I'd written a book before. I made myself write at one point a paragraph per day. And as long as I could do that, as long as I could drive myself to the desk and write a paragraph per day, life was moving forward in a certain direction.
3: Uh, that's interesting. You know, we do talk a lot about the daily artistic practice here and the value of that. Were you a right everyday kind of person prior to getting sick or or
1: I mean I'd been very attached to the first novel that I'd written, but I wrote it in fits and starts. You know, I'd buy a bottle of wine and go home and smoke cigarettes and write and drink wine and listen to Cat Power until 4 a.m. You can't do that every night, you know? Right.
3: Not at our advanced age and state of decline.
1: <laughs> well, this is many years ago. So I was working on this next novel in this sort of dutiful way, you know, making sure, yeah, I was working on it every day, every day that I had time to do it. I was busy finding time to sit with a notebook and write for at least an hour or so. But what I learned with the Losing Music Project, with the book that eventually became Losing Music, was how much it helps to feel as though you have to write a book. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel remotely dutiful. It felt desperate. It felt as though... This was the way I claw myself back to the world by managing to turn this chaotic, because this is what art is, right? I mean, art is this meaningless chaos of life. Life doesn't mean anything. It's just one thing (laughs) after another, right? So life is obviously unsettling, obviously it screws up our, our brains, which are looking for patterns all the time and looking for problems to solve. And what art does is it puts this in a shape. It it puts it in a box. It puts it in a certain squiggly line. And then we can see all the way around it. And then we can sort of feel like, okay, we we have some perspective on this thing that we're doing. I needed to be able to put all these pages together and hand them to someone and say, this is what's happening. This is who I was and this is who I've become. All these wonderful things. To be able to do that, I felt as though would be the thing that would bring me back to life and it worked.
3: That's amazing. You know, um, Richard Boloslavsky talks about this a lot in his lectures in the 1920s that, you know, we go to art because it has aestheticized the world, and the world is mm-hmm. like a—I mean, a lot of the world sucks. But even art about <laughs> the stuff that sucks about the world, you know, it's still—we mm-hmm. it, crave perfectibility. I think is the way he talked about it. Because, which is his way of talking about that sort of organizing experience that that mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Oh yeah. Um, was it always going to be? autobiographical nonfiction prose, because you've mentioned that you're a novelist. You're also a quite good short story writer. You're a very good playwright. You know, you've worked in a lot of different forms
1: no, I knew it had to be nonfiction because with fiction, I need too much distance. Mm-hmm. I'll see something, I'll hear something, I'll think about something, and then I'll need a good decade to pass before I can kind of transmute that into fiction, before it settles. It has to resettle. It has to resilt its way back mm-hmm. into the. Everyone's different this way, but it has to resettle itself back into the subconscious, the unconscious. Uh, this wasn't like that at all. I knew that this was an unusual thing that was happening to me. This was an exceptional thing. And so I had to just, it was sort of a witness project i had to witness this thing that was going on well of course the wonderful thing about writing a book is you change as you write the book the book changes as you write the book you grow up together right you you know and um toward the end of the book we hear a lot of stories and even early on in the book we hear a lot of stories of other people whose lives are also changing who are also bearing witness to this weird thing that is life that is happening to them and i i grew to love this idea of putting as many new voices as i could into the book as many of these stories of transformation as I could. And um, this became a new engine that was powering the story for me.
3: Well, I have one really... Maybe penny anti technical question, which is, um, were you writing by hand in the early days of writing this book, since you couldn't always look at a computer monitor, or were oh, you absolutely
1: typewriting, or I was doing everything. I I've experimented with that, these early versions of Dragon. Because this is back in 2014, 15. These early versions of Dragon voice dictation software. It's wonderful now. It wasn't very good back then. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sitting there. You're saying, I ellipses despair period uh backspace five spaces i am dash despair you know uh i wrote on scraps of paper i wrote in notebooks i i had a, a hundred word documents the first chapter of what eventually became the book was a bunch of different scraps of paper in a folder in just a manila folder that mm-hmm. i'd gathered around and i pulled them all out and i said to myself all right where's the shape Where's the shape I can find in these scraps? And that's not how I wrote every chapter, but that became one of the ways I wrote chapters as I move forward.
3: Right, right. You know, one essential thing that makes the memoir as an art form work is the triangulation between the events and the I who experienced the story and then the I who is writing the story. You mentioned that, you know, many of the events in this book are actually maybe transpiring after you started thinking about writing about them mm-hmm. as a book and stuff. How how do you modulate the distance or decide how close you want to be and when to enter a more reflective mode and and when to just, you know, narrate as presently as possible?
1: Well, that's what happens through revision, I think. Early drafts that I would show people, they would say things like this is very raw. You know, my friend Tim in Denver said I don't think you should revise it, he said, but I also don't think you can publish it like this, (laughs) you know, because he he said, it's very raw. He said, it's very, you're in a lot of pain, man. You know, and he was, he was right. I was, it's not as though I needed to mute the pain, but it did need that voice of distance. It did need, it needed to put some gabapentin on the book. It needed to put a, a heavy blanket on the nerves of the book in order that the story might move along like a river and not Mm -hmm. hit all these emotional rapids. But this is, again, all revision. You know, I um, only toward the end of the process of writing the book did I realize this sounds strange, right? This sounds very counterintuitive because it's a memoir. But only toward the very end did I realize how much it needed to be about me. Mm -hmm. Because when I started writing, I thought, this is about the disease or the sickness. And then I kept writing and I thought, okay, this is about the American medical industrial complex and the difficulty of negotiating your way through it. And I mean, Jesus Christ, I'm a privileged cisgendered white man. Imagine if I wasn't, I'm a native English speaker. Imagine if I wasn't, I had a translator with me at all times for when I wasn't able to hear. Imagine if I hadn't. Okay. So then later I said to myself, this has to be a book about the history of years disease. Or later I said to myself, this has to be a book about how different people have dealt with loss this has to be a book about how luck has deformed or formed the lives of all of these souls i've met Mm -hmm. in the course of my journey you know and you can probably see that as you read the book you can see these artifacts of research you can see when i went into the library for a week and came out with a bunch of pages and then the editor wasn't able to ever get them out of the book you know they're still there (laughs) in the book and only toward the end of the project. My agent Noah was very helpful with this, as was my editor Daniel, very helpful with this, with making clear to me this is a memoir. So where's your story? Where's the I, the speaking I, the voice, the me that is drawn like a thread through the story. And do you think you were hiding
3: that... behind all that stuff a little bit? Or certainly.
1: Oh yeah. But that's not the story I want to tell. Right. Isaac, I don't want to talk about how I was hiding. I'd rather talk about something else
3: there's that tweet that went around that's very funny about, um, the modern essay on the hot dog. Like every essay starts, you know, I remember as a child eating the hot dog, the taste, the smell, and then there's a double paragraph break. And it's like the hot dog was invented by Stephen hot dog in 1895. (laughs) Or or, originally invented yes. Yeah.
1: yeah, And and it's very
3: easy to use that structure to hide. Like I, I have a similar reluctance sometimes about Mm-hmm. sneaking out from behind the research to be like, hi, this mm-hmm. is me. Here's how I feel about this stuff. So I am just interested in how you, once you got that note, how did you embrace that challenge of being like, okay, I really do have to be vulnerable and reveal myself in these ways and make it about me.
1: Well, I think part of the problem with that journey, with that thing I had to do is that the eye is not a stable thing. It's not a yeah. constant thing. Right. And so what I had been resisting was this notion of saying, this All of this stuff happened to person X early on, and all of it happened to person X later on, and there's this consistency, there's this sameness in the character, in the in the, in the feelings of person X, in the expectations of person X. But of course, all these things change constantly. So I think understanding that it was okay to embrace this uh, chorus of I. Right, the sense that I is not always the same and make that part of the story. I mean, you you know this as an artist. When you encounter a problem, sometimes you just have to make that part of the story.
3: Charles Baxter said this thing to us in in grad school that was like, a problem for your text must become a problem in your text. And I think about it all the time. Cause it's like the most useful piece of advice, I think, when you're when you're rewriting something.
1: Uh, is couldn't be more true. And it was certainly the case with me. And so that became, to some extent, the subject of the book. You know, why was I trying to hide as an I? Because I wasn't the same person. Hmm. Because the person who'd gotten sick isn't the person who's doing this podcast, because I changed. I became the person he was afraid I'd become. Hmm. I became the person who didn't find a cure for my condition. I became the person who had to find a way to live with it. And that changed how I apprehend the world and that changed how I processed the world and that changed who I was.
3: Yeah. You know, that's so fascinating because if you had to become that person, if there was somehow a cure for mini Air's disease, uh, mm-hmm. which as you mentioned in the book is like, it's useful in some ways as a diagnosis, but it's also a catch-all term for a bunch of different symptoms mm-hmm. that 50 years from now, we'll probably think of as completely different disorders. That's um, right. It's
1: a diagnosis of exclusion.
3: Yeah. Yeah getting cured though that that's a great ending right you know the, the your story doesn't have you know the traditional bow of like uh then we had a baby or you know then i was cured or you know then i moved to canada or you know whatever it is and you know how did you figure out what the ending was going to be because so much of the structure of a work relies on thinking backwards from the ending through to the whole text right
1: yeah I went down to Virginia, I went to a little town where I uh, didn't know anybody, I didn't have anything to do, I was house sitting for some friends and I sat in their backyard and I walked myself through all the events of the story again, putting myself back into the book and then I asked myself, and what did you learn (laughs) And, and where have you wound up, you know? And one of the things I learned was about our expectations of life and how these expectations become so real in our minds. And we get so angry when they don't seamlessly transmogrify themselves into reality. You know, when I got sick, when things were really bad, it was as though movers had come to my house and all these crates marked the future. And all these crates marked your expectations, your hopes, your dreams were being carted away by these movers. And this way I had imagined my life, because we don't realize we're doing it. We don't realize we're making this little book of the future. And then tomorrow we'll do this. And then next week I'll do this. And the week after I'll do this. We don't realize we're writing it. It had all been taken away. Hmm. And I had to find a way to formulate new hopes. And I had to understand they were provisional. And I had to live in that agnosticism about my own life, right? And we encounter this as artists, because as we're making something as an artist, whether we're a writer or, you know, a director or whatever we're doing, you you have a plan for how you want things to go. And you have to believe in that plan enough that you make it happen, that you begin the process of making it come to life. But you always have to keep that plan provisional enough that should something get in the way, you can revise. Mm -hmm. and i had to learn to think of my life that way and it's a constant process it's a constant struggle right you know we have this sense we'll get to a certain place in life i feel like i talk to people and they say well you know five days from now when i get out from under this stuff i'm working on right now then it'll all be you know smooth as glass or they say oh well you know a year from now, once this condo deal goes through and we, you know, we move out of the in-laws place and then we settle in and, you know, once John's back gets better, once, once we start to feel a little bit better, that's when things are really going to go well. Right. You know, we always feel as though we don't yet have the qualifications to live our own life, Hmm. you know? And, uh, it's not the case that we reach a certain point and then life just takes care of itself. In fact, The we, the speaking we, the person who says, I will get to this point in my life and things will start going well. Well, by the time you get to that point in your life, you're not the person who said we anymore. You're not Mm -hmm. the person who said I anymore. You're someone entirely different. And it's not simply that we transform into someone who we wouldn't have wanted to be. It's that we transform into someone we had no expectation we would be. It's the same
3: river twice problem, right? It's the, Mm -hmm. we're always changing.
1: Well, that's especially true for someone with a chronic illness like my own that relapses and remits. Mm -hmm. Some days I can hear just great. And some days I can barely hear at all. And in the days when I can hear just great, it's like time traveling to a past life. It's like when you have one of those dreams that you've lived a whole different life and then you wake up in the life you're living now.
3: Yeah, That's like when I have a
1: day when I can hear again. And I remember, oh my God, yes, that's what the birds sound like. Oh, they're great, but they're not just great. They're also annoying, right? Or I remember like, oh, that's what a Kleenex sounds like when it comes out of a box. I haven't heard it in months. Or I remember, you know, oh, that's what, you know, Elisa's sound. uh, my wife, Elisa, that's what her feet sound like as she's walking across the floor. I haven't heard that before. And it'll be like I'm 32 again or 28 again or at some other part of my life that's totally inaccessible to me now.
2: We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with John Cotter.
4: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money If you're a decision-maker, adding RAMP could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now, get $250 when you join RAMP for free. Just go to RAMP.com slash easy. RAMP.com slash easy. R-A-M-P easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions Supply.
2: Hey, listeners. We want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. And we really, really enjoy doing that. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with John Cotter.
3: One of the particular challenges is, of course, the limits of language. You know, you're putting an experience into language that to a certain extent resists being turned into language because... Of course, you know, language is not a one-to-one representation of lived experience. It's at best an approximation, you know, and as the title of your book suggests, one of the things you're often describing is actually absence. It's the, the lacuna. It's something that's missing and, mm-hmm. and it's such a vivid book. And I, I just love to hear you expound on, on that, you know, on a craft
1: level. I think it was important to fill that lacuna, right? I think it was important to say, what is this thing that I've lost? You know, the the easy thing is to find little typographical ways to describe sound disappearing, you know, using empty brackets for silence. Or I even at one point when I was trying to describe what it's like to walk into a room while people are watching TV and they're all talking at once, I even started making cut-ups. You know, those little William Burroughs cut-ups. I would, I, I copied out a bunch of dialogue and I took a scissors to it and I retaped it. Not very much of that wound up in the book. What I think is, what I hope is more meaningful to the reader more colorful for the reader is an attempt I made to recapture these things that were disappearing for me right what was it about that song that I lost that I can't hear anymore what was it about that song that I didn't want to lose and it might be that the song, which itself is maybe not such a great song, right? Maybe it's Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young. Why am I sitting here crying because I can't hear Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young? This is not a turn I expected in my life, right? The reason is because that song is it, not just that song. It's the first time you heard it. It's the third time you heard it. It's the it's the trip in the supermarket where they were playing it on the speakers before you were about to go camping with all your friends and having a wonderful time. It's the same supermarket playing the same song when you're back the next day, sick from, you know, all the whiskey you drank around the campfire and just looking for, you know, uh, I don't know, some oatmeal. It's the radio in the bar where you're shooting pool when you're 25 it's a room you can go inside and refute time and you can even go into that room and close the door behind you sometimes and that's the meaning of art in our lives and to lose a lot of that or or to always be at risk of losing it to be one-fifth dead to the music of reality this became something that i had to capture too and i had to capture it in a in a negative way i had to describe what it was i was losing
3: That song is, for me, that's a fifth grade. Everyone in my fifth grade class, one by one, got uh, Billy Joel's Greatest Hits, Volume 1 and 2 on cassette. Yes, of course. And and it's just like one by one. you know, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, one by one, everyone in the class (laughs) getting it. And then, uh, you know, listening to the songs. And then again, when you're older and you learn that what that song's really about is him trying to talk a girl into
1: bed. It only recently has this been explained to me. Yeah. Now, of course, now I denounce the song, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because what you're talking about, of course, is memory and memoir is, you know, it's right there in the it's phonetically right there in the name. Um, When you're remembering episodes from your past to put them on the page, are there certain tricks you have for kind of re-entering a memory you know uh mm-hmm. are there sensory cues the way an actor does or is it uh, absolutely
1: yeah there's a few ways i do it i mean one of them is uh to write it down while it's happening i recommend that one i recommend not having to remember it so there's there's a lot of periods there's a lot of scenes in the book where i had just it, the scene had taken place in the other room and i went into a different room to write it down five minutes later you know so you're getting fresh scene there that is not it hasn't been on the shelf for a minute longer than it needed to be but of course at other times yes i'm writing about things that took place years ago so one of the things i do is i move around the room i mean memory is embodied this is one of these corny things that people say and you think oh they're trying to sell me something you know but it's true memory is embodied i mean you as the editor director you know this right as someone who studied acting you know this uh I'll walk around in the way that I was walking then. I'll try to remember exactly where people were sitting. And if I still have the furniture, whatever, I'll go and sit there. I'll, you know, I sit there with my eyes closed for a long time, really trying to remember on my way back. One of the things that I do is I interview people. You know, if I'm writing a scene that, you know, uh, there's this scene in the book where we're, I'm directing a play with, um, Elisa, my partner, and and Aaron Angelo, the author and actor and director and man who wears many hats brilliantly. Uh, And we're sitting around talking about the play, The Designated Mourner. Well, at the time I'm writing this scene, of course, the real life episode was six years in the past, seven years in the past. I'm having a lot of trouble remembering the minutiae of what was discussed, but I have to, to some extent, right, to make this come to life. So I, I called Aaron and I said, what's everything you remember about that afternoon? And then I wrote down not just what he remembered about that afternoon, but what he talked about generally in the call. I said, okay, well, the play, when, when I would give Elisa these notes, what were you thinking? What did you even think about the play? Well, okay, that's interesting. I mean, did you think I did a good job as a director? Oh, you didn't. Well, so what so what would you have done? I just wrote down, I, I just sat with a notepad, writing down everything that he said. And then I talked to Elisa about the same scene. Okay, so when Aaron brought up that bit about what you do about nothing, you had some sort of joke there. Do you remember what that joke was? Uh-huh. Well, so. Did you feel like we were people you could joke with pretty easily? Do you feel like we would have done the rehearsal a little better if we hadn't been drinking the whole time? (laughs) Do you feel as though it's a play you want to reread now? And whatever she said, I'd write down her answers. I'd write down the answers. And then I started pushing this text around and saying, well, this seems like something that we probably said. And let's use this as a placeholder and let's run this up and see how it works. And I kind of tried to reconstruct it the way. An archaeologist, not to get too, too, you know, pseudo profound about it, but the way an archaeologist would put a dinosaur together, you know, in some of these scenes, I did the absolute best I could in some of these scenes. You know, it might be a Tyrannosaurus with a Allosaurus thigh bone in there. And uh, as long as it works, it works.
3: Right, right. So, you know, you're writing about experience. Sometimes you're saying, you know, something happens to you, you run into the next room and, and you write about it. I'm very interested in what stays and what goes as you revise. Was there like a kind of mammoth version of this that you had to cut a bunch from? Or did you always have a sense of what would fit and what wouldn't?
1: No, I had several different conceptions of what the book would be as time went on. And of course, you have to remember, it took me years to write the book. So the story of what was going on with me changed as the book was written. You know, when I started writing the book, I thought I would be, uh, profoundly deaf now i thought i wouldn't be able with these high-powered headphones to hear your voice but i can Mm. on a good day i can that was unexpected you know i thought when i began writing the book that by the time i finished the book perhaps medical science would have made some uh advances in understanding this condition which it hasn't done
3: was there a certain point where you figured out kind of quote unquote rules for sort of what would stay in and what would go and how to make sense of the massive material
1: you had accumulated yes but a lot of that is instinctual Mm -hmm. a lot of that is simply having read thousands of books and having a sense of okay at this point the reader is going to want something that you know will make them laugh Okay, right. at this point you you've hit the reader too hard with research. You've given them I remember I remember when I was reading Ulysses in class with a friend so many years ago and he said you or no, I wasn't reading it, he was reading it. I was reading some other book. And he said, and I was intimidated by it. I said, oh, I don't think I can ever read Ulysses. And he said, oh, it's easy. He said, it's, it's really hard stuff, but then Joyce gives you a little something. It's almost like he gives you a little, like at a dog show when they give the creatures little treats that they carry right. in fanny packs. You know, Joyce will do that. He'll give you a little, like, filthy material, right? Or some, you know, delightfully stupid joke or uh, or some beautiful piece of poetry, right? Well, of course, you know, I'm, I'm in a different situation writing this. But, I, yeah, you have a sense of things. I also think that, I I forget who it was. Was it Chet Baker? It wasn't Chet Baker. It was someone who wasn't or might have been Chet Baker said, if you don't play the trumpet for a year, when you pick it up, you're a better trumpet player. Hmm. I think when you live as an artist, even if you're not working on, you know, I hadn't been writing for a couple of years before I started working on this project. And I think I was a better writer Hmm. than I had been. You know, uh, you, you mentioned that I write short stories too. I used to try to write short stories in my twenties and they were abysmal. You know, they were like the, they were the short story version of the videotape in infinite jest. You know, they just send people leaping out of windows, but, uh, I, and I didn't touch, I didn't try to write a short story for another, maybe two or three, maybe here or there for another 15, 20 years. And then suddenly a couple of years ago, I sat down to write some and I knew how to do it. That's wild. I hadn't tried in the intervening years. I just suddenly knew how to write one. And I think something similar must have happened with some of the passages of this book, with some of the scenes. You know, there were a couple of chapters that I designed. I thought, okay, I want these to read like magazine essays. And i had had unsuccessful experiences trying to write such things in the past, but suddenly I was able to do it. Or I said, you know, I want some of these chapters to work uh, as sort of braided, fragmentary essays. And I've always been very cautious around that kind of thing. I've never had a lot of luck with it, but it just came together. And I think it's a product of also having been, I, you know, I'm in a unique situation where I think of myself as a writer, you know, and I'm, I'm 46 years old. This is only my second book. I've read a lot. <laughs> I, I've spent most of my life reading when I should have been writing. And I read nonfiction and I read fiction and I read poetry and I read manuals and, I, you know, I read uh, art books and I read books about, uh, I read environmental histories. And, and I think when you expose yourself to enough different things, you know, I kind of, I was a dilettante in the theater for a number of years, you come back with different kinds of solutions. And I think as I was writing the, you know, as I was writing the Jonathan Swift chapter, and you can see, you know, in this chapter of the book in which I tell the, it's a little potted biography of Jonathan Swift, but I try to make it dramatic, I try to make it interesting, I was trying to use the tools of fiction to reimagine right. Swift's life, you know? And But then in other chapters, chapters that are more lyrical and fragmentary, I was using things I'd learned in poetry, mm-hmm. when writing poetry, you know, to say, okay, well, a lot has to hang on this one line. So let's really work on this one line. Let's revise it and revise it. Or, you know, maybe maybe this sentence is incomplete. Maybe you just leave it hanging there. And this is a kind of textual effect. And uh I resisted the urge to explain why those scenes were there or try to connect them to each other. Because this is something I picked up from reading contemporary poetry, from reading lyric essays. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, John, thank you so much for joining us this week on working and talking about your process and your book. I I just really appreciate it.
1: Isaac, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Up next, Isaac and I will talk about tactics writers use to access memories and how our writing processes change as we get older. Stick around.
5: Isaac,
2: that was a phenomenal interview. You two clearly are on the same wavelength about some really key creative questions and challenges. I felt like I was like eavesdropping on a really cool conversation by very smart people who oh, really thank you. have thought a lot about this stuff. Um, I was really taken with his very clear acknowledgement that even before he was struck with this illness, that in his late 30s and early 40s, he knew he couldn't approach writing in the same way he had when he wrote his first novel in his 20s, which was a very, tell me you were in your 20s without telling me you were in your 20s method, you know, like late nights, alcohol, listening to certain singer-songwriters on heavy repeat. And I, I think it's really useful to understand that even in our most successful periods, those kind of productivity methods, you know, which after all helped him write a novel, aren't necessarily sustainable throughout our lives. And it also made me think of how, you know, some self-destructive writers like Kenneth Tynan, who believed he could only write when he smoked and booze. And guess what? It killed him and he kind of knew it would. Anyway, Isaac, I wonder, have the ways you are able to get quality writing done changed over the years? And since I'm assuming that the answer is, duh, hell yes, how did you figure out what you needed to change?
3: Yes, of course it changed. Um I would say, you know, a friend who's in successful novelist told me when I was in graduate school that a lot of what graduate school is actually about is habit and discipline formation you know now that you have the time and the space to write every day you actually have to write every day because you have to get used to what it feels like to write every day and have that and own that and and see what it means to make writing the top priority in your life and so in graduate school I really was doing that I was writing every day five days a week five to six days a week I think I took one day off but you know every morning I didn't have a kid then I would you know walk my dog. I would go to the terrible French restaurant to block away from my apartment. I would order the one thing on their menu that was any good, which was (laughs) a weird thing to eat at nine in the morning. It was a frisee salad with poached egg and lardons because it was a French restaurant. Uh, And I would drink their ghastly coffee and I would I would write all morning. You know, I did did that. I really did do that every day. Then you graduate from graduate school and you have to do things like make money and freelance and all that stuff. And and that interferes with it. And then you have a kid and your time becomes very different. So at each stage of my life, I have really had to alter the habits by which I work. But the thing I hold on to is that discipline that I honed in graduate school that, you know, all things considered, if all other obligations melted away, I would be spending every at least every morning in front of a computer or notebook writing. And so knowing that when I have the free time, when I have the space, I need to go do that is really, really, really important.
2: Yeah, well, I enjoyed John's answer to your question about how, you know, what he did to sort of recall experiences or sensations or particular periods in his life. And I had a very strong response, though, which was that I think sometimes you have to write things down to memorialise them, like not to memorise them, but just to kind of make a record of them. And then it's not necessarily, or maybe not always, a good idea to refer to those notes when you're trying to process the experience into another piece of writing. In fact, in my experience, someone who can waste you know, a lot of time, many hours, sometimes even days looking for notes that I know I made and I just can't put my hands on, that sometimes it's better to just try and recall what you wrote, you know, that way the strongest or the most emotionally resonant images or ideas bubble up. And I wonder, is that just me or is that something you've experienced too?
3: I don't know that I've experienced it in exactly this way. The the mm-hmm. thing that I would say that really agrees with what you're talking about, and we've mentioned this many times here, I feel like, is you know, you have to create the circumstances for your unconscious mind or your subconscious yeah. or your reptile brain or whatever you want to talk about for it to do its job. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes that means, yeah, you do a lot of prep work and then you actually throw all the prep work away and you just (laughs) see what comes out. That's actually a really great tactic. Sometimes it's that you go on a long walk or take an hour-long shower, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, you're talking about one specific way of doing that. I now do almost all of my notes into the notes app of my phone, which is Mm -hmm. Mm synced to my iPad and to my computer. So I will never lose them. Or if I'm doing handwritten notes, I try to transcribe them into a Google Doc as quickly as possible so that I don't lose it. I will say the craziest version of this strategy that I've ever heard. uh, I interviewed the novelist Percival Everett who's an incredibly brilliant, also remarkably prolific, like book every Hmm. 18 months. Whoa. Writer um, uh, whose most recent book is called Dr. No. And I interviewed him when he came to visit uh, the University of Minnesota and I was in graduate school. And he said um, that his process was he handwrites the first draft of the novel on legal pads to get a sense of what the book is, what the characters are, what the plot is. Right. And then he literally throws it in the garbage, oh, and then sits down and writes the first real draft of the book because that draft is just shit. It's just there to get the ideas out. And I thought that was the wildest and most terrifying revision strategy I'd ever heard of.
2: I know I'm absolutely sweating and like anxious <laughs> right now. Like that is. Oh, that's, that's You're cool. like you mean you don't translate it into a Zettelkasten. Where's his backlinks, man? Yeah, exactly. I also want to, before we move on, I want to note that this kind of, you know, let it, let whatever sits with you, whatever bubbles up, user, that only applies to things like feelings and memories. Uh, that is not a good way to handle facts. Let that be known. Um, Isaac, you quoted from a graduate school writing teacher who has provided wisdom in several episodes of working. Clearly, he was an amazing teacher. You quoted Charles Baxter saying, and I believe it was, a problem for your text must become a problem in your text. And while I'm now a little bit obsessed with that phrase and I find that idea fascinating, I confess I'm not exactly sure I completely understand what it means. Can you give me a little more flavour of that? Maybe with an example?
3: I don't have an example from my own process, so this is going to be a hypothetical. Uh, but before I get to it, I want to just say that Charlie does have three books about writing. Burning Down the House, The Art of Subtext, and Wonderlands. And so if you want a sense of what it was mm. like to study with him, just get those three books, read them. They will immediately improve your writing. Even though they're about fiction, they really the lessons really apply to nonfiction as well. Mm. Back to this. So let's say you've written a short story, a novel or whatever, you know, you have a draft and what you discover in reading this or the feedback you get from your friends or your, your fellow students or whatever is, you know, your um, protagonist is pretty aimless. They don't seem to want anything. Mm -hmm. That's a very typical note. You know, most of the time in most narrative, the things that characters want drive the story Often, particularly early career writers, struggle to make their characters want things that are big enough to keep the story going forward. Uh So there's a few things that you can do about that. You can rewrite the story to make those desires clearer and make them an engine of the story. That's fixing the problem, right? But another thing is you can make the fact that the character does not know what they want the central problem for them within the story. Uh That is taking the problem for your text and making it the problem in your text, Got it. right? Another yeah. example is you might have a novel that's from the first person perspective, male narrator, uh, and the main female character does not appear particularly well developed because they're completely through the male narrator's gaze, right? Yeah. There's a bunch of different things you could do to solve that. You could make it a third-person novel instead, right? You know, there's Mm. uh, anything can change. But one thing you can also do is just, you know, if the female character says, I don't feel like you see me for who I really am, just that one sentence does an enormous amount of work, and you suddenly realize, oh, this is about how the character can't see this woman for who she is, right? So it's little things like that. It's that you don't always have to completely change what you're doing. You have to make what you're doing Part of the text in a really deeply meaningful way.
2: Wow, that is super interesting. I have to say, I was really moved by John's description of how his particular condition, because it is uh, in that beautiful phrase, relapsing and remitting, means that he gets to re-experience some things that he thought or appeared to have been lost. Completely unpredictable times, you know. To be honest with you, I don't really have a question here, but I just <laughs> want to say how how like beautiful I thought. His evocation of that concept was, though it also made me think that it must make those like quotidian sounds that reappear, you know, a Kleenex coming out of a box, the sounds of footsteps on the carpet, even Billy Joel songs, almost unbearably precious. I mean, what a thing to contemplate every time you hear pretty much anything.
3: Yeah. It is a thing to contemplate anyone finding Billy Joel's <laughs> schmaltzy crap to be precious. But uh, yeah. no, more seriously, more seriously. Uh, I completely agree with you. And I will say that those are some of the most beautiful parts of the book. The evocation of those sounds that he has missed. And when they suddenly come in, you know, it's like... um. When my wife had COVID, she lost her sense of taste. It was only for two weeks, but when it came back, it was like, oh my God, that's what spicy tastes like. That's what bitter (laughs) tastes like, you know? Um, And it is a reminder, I think the lesson to take away for all of us creative people is how important the sensory experience of the world is for being a creative artist, right? That part of what you have to do to be a creative artist is to train your senses and your sense memory to really take in all of that stuff so that, you know, I mean, most of the time you don't want to describe every sensory detail of every room you're in, right? You know, like that right, gets overwhelming. Right. But, yep. you know, you should be able to say, okay, that's that's a yellow flower or whatever, right? But then you should also be able to say like, well, what kind of yellow flower is it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, is one of the petals damaged? Is one, you know. So June, for example, with, with your book, uh, which I know you just turned in and so congratulations <laughs> on that, Mazel you. Tov. Your book, Where Are All the Lesbians, which is about the spaces in which lesbian culture and political consciousness kind of evolved over the course of the 20th century, you know, those are real physical spaces. And often they're, for example, they're bars, right? So like, how sticky is the floor of that bar? What music was playing on the jukebox? You know, who won at darts on a Tuesday? All these things are are really important.
2: (laughs) They are. And I have to tell you, Isaac, that as you were speaking then, I was like, have experiencing a sensation of guilt or of like, oh my God, you're so lazy because I know that at points I've said, yeah, that's not really, I'm not very good at that kind of writing. I don't really do a lot of that. Like, that is not anything to brag about. Like, you need to, you need to find that content. If you, you know, right now I don't know what, how sticky the floor was or what the room smelled like, although I can guess. Like, you need to figure that out. You don't just say, oh, I don't know, I don't remember. Like, that is not the answer to that creative challenge. You have to, you have to get in there. You have to go back there and figure that out.
3: Yeah, and in nonfiction that's tricky, right? Because you don't want to make that shit up.
2: Right. Or it may be the fact that you don't can be interesting. So, for example, there actually is a challenge with lesbian bars specifically because... There was a great taboo against taking photographs because, you know, there were dangerous places until really quite recently. And there are no photographs. And I remember like coming across a PhD dissertation where a woman had tracked down a regular uh, customer of a bar, a woman who was a bartender there. And like, okay, tell me what was it like? Describe it. And they just couldn't. They really had no recollection of this place because it was kind of bland, I guess. And also... You know, that wasn't what they were paying attention to. That wasn't what they were looking at. Uh, All they remembered was that there was a big video screen and that was it.
3: Right. And then that lacuna is thematically so important because your project is one of reclaiming these lost spaces and these forgotten spaces and these forbidden spaces.
2: Exactly. All right, that's all we've got time for this week. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash workingplus
3: thank you to john cotter for being our guest this week and to our outstanding producer cameron drews we'll be back next week with june's conversation with drag performer Lil miss hot mess until then get back to work